Good morning. Glad that you've chosen to worship with us here at Prairie View. I do want to give a couple quick disclaimers before I start preaching today. Um, I've been having some really severe neck pain, and it makes it really hard for me to swallow. And when you can't swallow, you discover quickly that it's way harder to talk uh, when you can't swallow. So if I have to take some extra pauses in between points or something, or if I am wincing and look like I'm in pain, it's because I'm in pain. Um, so I just wanted to give you a heads up about that. And I also have a bottle of water up here with me just in case I need that. So I can pull a Marco Rubio if I need to stop in the middle of my sermon and uh, get a drink. But uh, with that, over the past couple of weeks, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, looking at the life and ministry of Jesus. And we've learned a lot of things about Jesus so far. We've learned that even though he performs miracles, he's more than just a miracle worker. We've learned that even though he teaches, he's more than just a teacher. We've learned that even though he has confrontations with religious leaders, that's not the only reason he came. He came preaching the kingdom and preaching repentance. And if you got all that stuff, that's a pretty good idea of Jesus' ministry. But a few weeks back, we looked at three different miracle accounts in the second half of Mark chapter 1. And we looked at those three accounts and saw what those accounts told us about Jesus. These three different people came to Jesus looking for healing. One was a demon-possessed man in the synagogue comes to Jesus. One was Simon's mother-in-law, who she was having a fever, and so Jesus healed her. And then the third person was a leper that came to Jesus. And we didn't really know a whole lot about the people who got healed. All we knew was that they had issues and they came to Jesus to get healed. We learned a whole lot about Jesus in those stories, but we didn't learn as much about the people being healed. And if you've ever been at home, maybe you've heard a spouse or a sibling or one of your children um, answer the phone. And based on the way they answer the phone, you can tell who's on the other line. You can make an educated guess at who's on the other line. When they pick up the phone, if they look at the caller ID, you can tell who's on the other line because they might go, or they might go, and so you have that. And then sometimes you hear them say, oh, hey, what's up? And then sometimes they say, hello? And so you can tell. And then maybe the topic of conversation gives you some idea of who they're talking to. And after a few minutes of listening, you find that, okay, I think there's a 99.9% chance that they are talking to Aunt Sue. And then they get off the phone, and you find out they were talking to Aunt Sue. Because you heard enough of one side of the conversation to tell what was happening. But the thing is that you're not always right about that. Even if you are 100% sure that you got it right, there's that little tiny chance that maybe you didn't get it right. Maybe they weren't talking to the person you thought they were, because you only heard one side of the conversation. And so today we're going to look at three different miracle accounts, kind of from the other side of the conversation. We saw the Jesus side. We learned a lot about Jesus through those miracle accounts in Mark chapter 1. Now we're going to learn a lot about what type of people come to Jesus for miracles. What type of people come to Jesus for healing, looking at the other side of the conversation. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Mark chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to start reading Mark chapter 5, verse 1. And we should have verses up here on the screen momentarily, although the mountain you know, landscape is beautiful. Um, we should have verses up on the screen momentarily, or we have Bibles underneath some of the chairs, so feel free to follow along there too. So Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, 
Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So we read these first few verses, and the Gerasenes, there is some debate about where this actually happened. If you're following along in your Bible, there may be a little footnote that says that there have been some discussion about the spelling of that word. Maybe it's Gerasenes, maybe it's Gergesenes, maybe it's Gadarenes. Really, it's not all that important, to be honest. It's in the same region called the Decapolis. And this is happening in the Decapolis, which is a group of ten cities near the sea, and it's primarily non-Jewish territory. It's primarily Gentile territory. And so Jesus is not on his home field. Up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' dealings have been with fellow Jews. But now he's dealing with people who aren't Jewish. And then on top of that, I don't know, I know there's always some controversy um, in churches about Halloween, and whether or not, you know, Christians should celebrate Halloween. I'm not going to dare broach that topic um, two months into my stint here at Prairie View. But I will say this. I will say this. If you are a Christian who celebrates Halloween and you're looking for some sort of devotional to go along with your Halloween, this would be great. Because you've got a guy living in a graveyard with superhuman strength, covered in blood, running around and screaming. So if you're ever looking for a Halloween devotional, this is your passage to go to. But we see this guy, and even though it's kind of, you know, kind of goofy when we read it that way, we really see the picture of a man who is hopeless. He really is hopeless. He's cutting himself with stones. These demons that have possessed him are causing him to live this totally self-destructive lifestyle. And he's hurting, both physically and spiritually. So what happens? Verse 6, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So this man sees Jesus, and he runs up to Jesus and approaches Jesus. And if you're the disciples, you're probably kind of backing away a little bit when he runs up and approaches Jesus. And then you see the guy have this conversation with Jesus. But really, it's not the guy talking. It's the demon talking. The guy runs up, but from that point forward, the demon kind of takes over. And there's this conversation happening between Jesus and the demon, and the demon is begging Jesus not to throw him out, not to torment him. And Jesus isn't going to have any of it. Verse 9, Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. So Jesus asked him, what's your name? And he says, Legion. And the word Legion back then could have been used to refer to a company of soldiers, up to 6,000 of them. So for this demon to claim the name Legion, we see that this isn't just a one demon affair. There's multiple issues happening here, and Jesus is outnumbered. Jesus is outnumbered by these demons. And these demons beg Jesus not to send them out of the country. And so Jesus cuts a deal with them. In verse 11, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. 
So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So these demons cut a deal with Jesus, and Jesus agrees to let them enter these pigs. Which, once again, that's a good clue that you're in a Gentile area, because Jews would have had nothing to do with pigs. So this is a Gentile area. Pigs were unclean to Jewish people. And so, once again, Jesus does not have home field advantage here. And so he sends the demons into the pigs, and the pigs run down this slope and into the sea, and they drown. And if you're the disciples, you're probably looking around like, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up to encounter, you know, Hulk in a graveyard and then see a bunch of pigs drown in the sea. This really is not what I had in mind. You know, teachings are cool, miracles have been pretty neat, but this is getting kind of freaky. So they're kind of concerned. And they're not the only ones who are concerned. They're not the only ones who think this is pretty freaky. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So this story happens, and the people find out about it. The herdsmen run and tell everyone in the city, guys, you're not going to believe what happened. You know that crazy guy that lives in the graveyards? Well, he's not crazy anymore, but 2,000 pigs just ran into the sea and died. And the people in there are like, okay, you've been out in the sun too long. But they say, no, you've got to come see this. I'm serious. This really happened. And so these people come, and when they see that it did happen, when they see that the demon-possessed man is now healed, when they see that that big herd of pigs that normally hangs out is not there, they're a little bit concerned. And a lot of people have debated why they would have asked Jesus to leave the region. Why would they ask him to leave? And some people say, well, they were just intimidated by someone so powerful. They didn't like the idea of someone so powerful living amongst them. What if someone with that kind of power went bad? We'd rather just have him go. Some people say that maybe they were afraid of change because they knew that if a guy this powerful is living amongst them, things are not going to be different. Things are not going to be the same. Things will be different. And they're not really interested in that. Things were okay before. Yeah, you had the crazy guy. But overall, things were okay. They were doing pretty well. And they don't want things to change. And then it could just be as simple as people are thinking, hey, um, this isn't really going to be good economically for our city because farmers are not going to want to come live in the city where thousands of pigs die because of one person. So maybe this isn't going to look good for business if we have Jesus living here. And 2,000 pigs, that's a lot of food. That's a lot of supplies to go away. And so Jesus probably didn't make any friends with that little move. The truth is that we don't really know why they asked him to leave. But Jesus isn't going to force himself upon them. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So the guy asked Jesus, you know, No one's ever going to view me any differently. They're always going to view me as the crazy, naked guy who lived in the graveyards. Um, So maybe I can come with you. 
Maybe I can come with you and I can be a part of your inner circle. I can follow you like the other guys. What do you say? And Jesus says, no. Stay here. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your neighbors what God has done for you. And that's very different from what we've been reading before, where Jesus would heal someone and then tell them to be quiet about it. He would tell them not to tell anybody. So why is Jesus' tune changing here? It's changing because the people before, they were celebrating him. They wanted to view him as a miracle worker. These people want nothing to do with him. And so if this guy leaves, these people will have no way of understanding who Jesus is. They'll just move on. And so he tells the guy, go home and tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your family. And he does just that. So that's miracle number one. A crazy guy living in the Decapolis, living in a graveyard. Honestly, he's kind of a monster is really what this guy is. He truly is a monster. But we've got two more miracles to go, and we're going to see that there's not much these guys have in common. So verse 21, healing number two. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So Jairus, this leader of the synagogue, comes to Jesus and he says, Look, my daughter is on her deathbed. Can you heal her? And Jesus says, Sure. And Jairus is probably elated that Jesus is going to come heal his daughter. He's heard the stories of what's happened. And his hope has shot through the roof. And he's feeling good. And he's feeling confident. But then verse 25 comes, and there's an interruption. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So Jairus is feeling good. He's thinking that my daughter's going to get healed. But then this woman steps in the way. This distraction comes up. And it's this woman who has this flow of blood. And it was a flow of blood that would have made her physically, spiritually, socially unclean. And she had been unclean for 12 years. She's a lot like the leper we talked about a few weeks ago. No one wanted anything to do with her. She was outside of the people of God. But even then, her disease would have been embarrassing because people would have heard about what's wrong with her and they would have said, oh, well, I wonder what she was doing that would have caused that type of issue. And so she comes to Jesus. And it says that she's gone to all these different physicians and tried everything. She has exhausted all of her resources. She's tried everything that people have recommended to her, and nothing's getting better. In fact, things are getting worse. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. And she might be at the point where she's ready to give up. But she's so desperate that when Jesus comes into town, she thinks, you know what? i got nothing else to lose at this point. Maybe he'll heal me. Maybe he won't. I don't know. But I might as well try it. I've tried everything else. But she does have a little bit of pride left in that she doesn't want to be seen by Jesus. She wants to swoop in, touch him without him knowing maybe, and then swoop out. She's probably embarrassed of what her issue is. She doesn't want people to know. 
And the thing is that she is healed. She gets what she wants. The flow of blood dries up, and she thinks that she's gotten away with it. But then look in verse 30. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, Jesus, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. So Jesus is like, now wait a minute, something just happened. I get the sense that power left me. Someone was healed, and I don't know who. And Jesus is looking around trying to figure out what went down. And he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, dude, Jesus, we're in a crowd. Like, everyone's touching you. Like, you're getting pushed back and forth all over the place. What do you mean, who touched you? We're all touching you. But Jesus keeps looking around. And then in verse 33, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So the woman comes to Jesus, and she sees him looking around, and she just doesn't have it in her heart to just walk away. After the healing that she was given, after the grace that she experienced, she doesn't have it in her heart to just run away, to just get out of there. She's got to face Jesus, and she does just that, and she falls to Jesus' feet. And he says, go in peace, you've been healed. And she leaves. It's a beautiful story. It's a story that I love reading. It's one of my favorite stories of Scripture, this Mark chapter 5, 25 through 34. But i got to wonder, what's Jairus doing this whole time? Jairus is probably sitting back, you know, <clears throat> hey, um, Jesus, uh, remember my daughter? Uh, she's dying. We were on our way. Um, and then not to mention, I did ask you first, um, so maybe you could heal my daughter first. And then, I mean, I'm kind of important. You know, I mean, I'm a synagogue leader, and this is a woman who clearly has some issues. Maybe we should focus on my daughter first, and then we'll worry about this woman later. But then something bad happens in verse 35. Jairus' worst nightmare comes true. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So Jairus' worst nightmare came true. And can you imagine the hatred and the bitterness that is building up in Jairus for that woman? Because Jairus is thinking, you know what, lady? If you wouldn't have gotten in the way, then maybe my daughter would still be alive. Maybe we would have made it in time. But you had to step in and ruin everything. But then Jesus senses what's going on with Jairus, and he says, Don't fear, only believe. Verse 37, And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. I mean, a synagogue ruler's daughter, that's not just any death. I mean, that would have been a death that the whole town is taking respect for. It's the kind of death where today you would see flags, you know, half-mast all across the town. That's how big a deal this would be. And so people are weeping and wailing and mourning. And then Jesus, it's funny, you know, sometimes Jesus can come across as a little bit of a jerk. Verse 39, he says, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. But they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child 
was. So Jesus says, hey, you know what? Don't worry about it. She's just sleeping. I'm going to heal her. It's all good. And Jesus, what he says is so ridiculous and so insane. These people that are weeping and wailing and mourning immediately start laughing at him. That's how completely ridiculous he sounds. But he goes in, and in verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. So the woman is healed, and the girl is raised from the dead. And Jesus, once again, does not just raise someone from the dead at arm's length. He reaches down and touches her. And this, too, would have made him unclean, because there were rules that said you weren't supposed to touch dead bodies if you were Jewish. And if you did, you would be unclean for a certain period of time. But Jesus does not seem to even acknowledge that. He goes on about his business. And what we see in Jesus' ministry, what we saw it with the leper, we saw it with Simon's mother-in-law, we see it with the woman with the flow of blood, and now we see it with this girl. The typical way of thinking was that if a clean person touched an unclean person, then they both end up unclean. But Jesus is totally reversing the logic and saying, you know what, when I touch someone, I don't end up being unclean, they end up being clean. He totally changes everything. He turns everything upside down. And everyone is healed who touches him. So what is it about these three miracles? We know way more about these people than we did the three other people in Mark chapter 1. What do they have in common? Well, they really don't have much of anything in common, to be honest. You've got one guy who's a monster living in a graveyard. You've got one guy who's a successful leader of the synagogue. And you've got one woman who is the worst of the worst that no one wanted anything to do with her. It seems like they have nothing in common. But the thing is, and I wonder if you caught it, there is one thing they have in common in all three of these stories. And it's seen in verse 6, verse 22, and verse 33. All three of them, they fall down at Jesus' feet. That's the one thing they all have in common. They fall down at Jesus' feet. Those are the only options they did have. No matter where they were coming from, no matter how many differences they had, they see Jesus and they fall at his feet. That's what unites them. And the same principle applies for us today. Whether you're black or white, male or female, Republican or Democrat, rich or poor, ultimately every single one of us is challenged to fall at Jesus' feet. To come to Jesus in fear and trembling, and to throw ourselves on his mercy. And if you're a follower of Christ, you will find that is an everyday thing, falling at Jesus' feet. And if you're not a follower of Christ, maybe you're like that woman. You've looked at all the different physicians. You've tried to fill things in your life that you thought would fulfill you. You tried to find forgiveness. You tried to find success. And every single time you go to one of those things, whether it's money or fame or athletic ability or academic achievement, you found that nothing is fulfilling you. You've tried everything. What have you got to lose? Fall at Jesus' feet. 
Because the people who experience healing, the people who experience forgiveness, the people who experience God's grace for what it truly is are the people who get rid of their pride, who get rid of their dignity in a sense, and they throw themselves at Jesus' feet because they know they have nowhere else to go. And that's the state that we all find ourselves in. James chapter 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Are you willing to do that today? Are you willing to throw yourself at Jesus' feet? That's the question we all have to face at some point. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your forgiveness. Thank you for the hope that you offer us. And God, I pray that every single one of us, when we come to that point in our lives where we've been like the woman, we've tried everything else, we've tried the physicians, we've tried the other things in life that promise us fulfillment and happiness, and none of them work. I pray that we'll throw ourselves at your feet, that we'll throw ourselves on your mercy, throw ourselves on your grace. And thank you for the opportunity that we have to do so. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you're ready to do that, if you're ready to throw yourself at Jesus' feet, we're going to have a couple elders sitting on the side of the room during this last song and after the service. So if you have questions about the church, if you have prayer requests, or if you're ready to make that decision to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus, talk to one of those guys.